When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder uh, yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host, Mike Cheatham And this is episode number 118 And it is January the 7th, 2023 And the title for the episode this week is Don't Shit in the Well That You Drink From, which is an African proverb. So let's get to the agenda and I will explain why I selected um, that as the title. So first of all, welcome to the first uh, episode of 2023. It seems that time is definitely flying. Um, It was... Uh, in 2020 uh, that I started the podcast, and uh, we are now into our third year. All right, so what's on the agenda? First up, as it relates to the intro, uh, or the title, rather, the um, uh, the reason that I selected that title, it is related to um, the segment, This Shit Is For Us, this week, where I'm going to talk about um, a video that I reviewed where that statement was made. So it was a group of Africans that were talking about um, Christianity in Africa and overall spirituality. And I want to take some excerpts from that video and talk about um, the important concepts that they discussed. Uh, but first up, though, uh, we will have feedback. Um, I'm not going to do a separate feedback section. In fact, I'm just going to talk about it right now. I did receive a message from a listener, Albert, uh, who said that they really appreciated the content of the show and the perspective presented. So um, they had mentioned they've been listening for a while, but uh, hadn't written in. So thanks, Albert. I really appreciate um, that feedback and we'll continue to try to provide um, content uh, and a perspective that resonates uh, with listeners like you. So first up uh, on the agenda then is going to be the segment, What's on My Mind, and I am titling it How to Be Happy in Hell. Now that's a bit of a misnomer um, and we'll once we get to that segment, I'll explain why, but um uh, I'm just using that title kind of in um, a sarcastic way, uh, and we'll get to that uh, once we get to that segment. After that, we'll cover the news. And uh, first up in the news, just the debacle that is going on in the House of Representatives over this week uh, with Kevin uh, McCarthy's lifelong dreams being crushed multiple times. 
Uh, after that, um, there's a news story that I'm just calling Fuck 12, and I think you know what that statement means. And then the next story I'm calling Fuck 12 again. So there are two stories related to the fucking police misconduct, and so uh, we have Fuck 12 and Fuck 12 again. Uh, after that, um, there's a story that I'm just calling, uh, asking the question, is apartheid really over? Uh, and there was a viral video that came out that uh, kind of showed that perhaps, at least from a mentality perspective, it is not. And then last up in the news, uh, there is a conservative leader, uh, Trump supporter, and and an individual that helped craft the, the messages around the so-called Stop the Steal, that now says that he was a time traveler. And this, these are the kinds of motherfuckers that are, that are running, uh, the Republican side of the, um, uh, two party system that we supposedly have. But that'll be it for the news. And then in this, um, in the segment, this shit is for us. As I said, I'm calling that the same name or title as the overall episode, which is don't shit in the well that you drink from. Uh, after that, we'll have Bible study with Atheist Mike. And uh, there, I, I was talking with someone o- over the last week or so, and we had talked about the book and movie 1984. And uh, I decided that in Bible study with Atheist Mike, I'm going to present that as a metaphor uh, for religion. Um, and I found some really good content um, that was aligned with my thinking on that topic. Uh, so I'll be presenting some excerpts from that paper along with my comments. And then uh, we will close out the episode this week with what I am titling Retribution versus Rehabilitation. Uh, so listen to the end and you'll see what I mean by that. All right, that's our agenda. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment What's on My Mind Uh, the first um, uh, segment in 2023 for the Rational Black Thought podcast. Right, welcome back and welcome to the segment What's On My Mind. And as I mentioned in the intro... The segment this week um, is titled How to Be Happy in Hell. And what I'm going to really talk about is not related to hell, and that's because hell doesn't exist. Uh, I am going to also ramble a bit uh, with this discussion because there are a lot of things on my mind, and not all of them are directly related, but I'm planning to stitch them together anyway, and hopefully that kind of rambling and stitching together will still uh, result in a coherent um, message. So I'm going to start out by addressing uh, a quandary. In many surveys, the results seem to indicate that believers, and especially Christians, seem to be happier than non-believers. The implication is is that believers have a greater sense of purpose than non-believers, and non-believers seem to suffer more from uh, depression. But here's what I think happens. Now, before I state my assumption of what happens, I want to acknowledge that it is, in fact, an assumption. 
It is based on speculation on my part and is informed by anecdotal evidence, but there aren't any hardcore facts that I have to prove this. But here's what I think. And again, I'm proposing it as a hypothetical situation. Say you have two people, one is a believer and one is a non-believer. Both are equally distressed. That is, both are, say, in poverty, both have ill health or other issues, and both have limited support from friends and family, etc. The non-believer would accurately describe that situation as undesirable and may report that they are unhappy because of it. Not that they are resigned to their situation. They may believe that they can change where they're, where they're at and uh, improve for the better. But for now, they would say that they were unhappy in that situation. The believer, on the other hand, would say that even though their circumstances are the same as the non-believers, they would say that they would quote probably Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, end quote. So the believer would say that they're happy, not because their life would be any better than the non-believers, but because they erroneously think that no matter how bad their life is in the real world, the imaginary world will be great once they get there. So the believer reports that they are happy, not because their life is good or that they feel greater love or purpose in their lives. They report that they are happy because they expect to, quote, eat shit and die in this life, and they think that they will have another life that will give them the fulfillment that they did not obtain in the real world. The truth is that they will never know because there is no other world. They will have squandered the only real life they ever had, but they still will report that they are happy in the process. The bottom line, though, is that believers, especially Christians, do not really believe in heaven. If they did, they would be trying to get there as soon as possible. Now, I know some of you will think that I'm talking about suicide and say that that is a sin, so the person committing suicide would not go to heaven, but that's not what I'm talking about. There are many Christian denominations that do not believe in medical science, but why would any Christian seek medical treatment? If they truly believe that God, quote, has taken a loved one uh, to their, quote, reward, why prolong that reward for your loved ones or for yourself? If you have a critical illness that could turn, turn terminal, why not take that as a sign that God is ready to take you to heaven if you're a believer? Why do most of you that believe run to the doctor and even pray to your God to heal you when you, when you, and why do you even want to be healed? Isn't the transition through death to paradise preferable? No, it's not because you do not really believe in heaven. Heaven is a fanciful construct to make those that have lost loved ones feel better about the loss, but they do not believe it because they do everything in their power not to go. When I talk about being happy in hell, I mean being happy and living in this one real life that we have without any concern about a an afterlife. In the earlier scenario, if you find yourself in an undesirable situation, do everything you can to change your circumstances before you die. I spent a significant part of my life addicted to drugs. During Part of that time, I was a believer, and I prayed to God to deliver me. 
He never did because he does not exist. Once I took responsibility for my own life, I was able to stop using drugs and stay stopped. And that self-directed effort led to major changes in my life. I changed my life and I transitioned from despair to joy. I did not need or rely on God. I relied on myself and on other human beings. The key to being happy in hell is to take radical responsibility for your own life. We are responsible for what we have in life and what we don't have, including happiness, including fulfillment, love, etc. Now, that's not to say that we cannot be victims. We can. But even then, it is our responsibility to heal from it. Those who victimize us are not going to care about our feelings, nor will they try to help us recover. Recovery is up to us. There is only one life, and whether it is lived as heaven or hell is up to you. I really don't give a fuck that some people say that I am going to hell, because why do they say that? It is because I like sex and don't feel that it is necessary to be married to enjoy it. Because I do not care who other people love and as long as all involved are consenting adults, I say whatever floats your boat. Because I do not, they say that I'm going to hell because I do not believe that a woman was raped by a ghost, gave birth to a half God, and that that half God walked on water, raised the dead, or did any of the other nonsensical shit that the Christians claim he did. I am being told that I am going to hell. Uh, I'm not being told that I'm going to hell because I murdered someone or that I raped anyone because I didn't and I haven't. I am not being told that I'm going to hell because I'm a thief because I'm not. I am being told that I am going to hell simply because I'm not a Christian, but I am happy not being a Christian. So I am happy in hell, motherfucker, and will be until the day I die. All right, that is it for this week's segment of What's On My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll cover the news. All right, welcome back and welcome to the news segment. Uh, we've got a lot on our plate um, and a lot of what's in the news is either political or social justice related. The rest of the uh, segments of the podcast are more religious related. Uh, but let's get to this. So every uh, first up is just Kevin McCarthy's green, dreams being crushed. So every opportunity over the last several years, Kevin McCarthy has talked about how Nancy Pelosi would, quote, hand him the speaker's gavel, end quote. And this is not the first time that Mr. McCarthy has felt that he deserved it, that he deserved the speakership gavel. And it is not the first time that his own members have said to him, fuck, no, you're not getting it. McCarthy may still win the speakership, but as of Actually, Friday morning, which is when I'm re 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 uh, recording, he has failed in 11 attempts and the number of no votes have grown from the first vote and now seem to be fairly stable at about 21 of his own members that are voting against him. Now, here's an article from Routers that's a bit dated. It it was uh, uh, came out um, uh, as of um, 
uh, on Thursday morning. Um, and so at that particular time, um, McCarthy had lost only uh, nine votes. Uh, he went on to lose uh, two more. So here's the article. The House of Representatives were on track to reject Kevin McCarthy's leadership bid for a ninth time on Thursday, even after he offered to reduce his own authority, sending the chamber deeper into paralysis and raising questions about the party's ability to wield power. With eight failed attempts to win the uh, the job, uh, the House uh, Speaker since uh, Tuesday it was not apparent that McCarthy had any path to nail down the majority needed to win the job. In a ninth round of voting, the holdouts quickly amassed enough votes to deny McCarthy the job again, which they did, uh, and then they went on to do it um, uh, uh, another, uh, as I said, couple of times, so he has now lost 11 votes. So the Republicans won a slim uh, 20, uh, 222 to 212 majority in the, uh, uh, in the House in the November midterm elections, meaning that McCarthy cannot afford to lose the support of more than four Republicans. As Democrats unite around their own candidate, uh, which is Hakeem Jeffries, uh, they, and so they have, the Democrats have voted uh, their 212 for Hakeem Jeffries every single time. And in fact, because of that, Hakeem Jeffries has had more votes than McCarthy for speaker. So not since 1923 had the House failed to elect a speaker on the first ballot, uh, and now not through uh, 1921 uh, has uh, the House uh, taken more than nine attempts to, uh, to elect a speaker. So the Republicans-controlled House looks like a clown car driven by a drunken clown, which is McCarthy. The passengers are all rowdy and grabbing at the wheel, like Trump trying to get out of the cap, get to the Capitol on January the sixth. The bad thing about this is that what we see is indicative of how the House will function over the next two years, or more importantly, not function. The Republicans that are blocking McCarthy do not want anything. McCarthy has already offered his mother to be fucked in every orifice if they would just vote for him, and they still won't vote for him. Even if McCarthy somehow wins, he will be so weak as not to be able to lead, and he will likely not be able to keep the gavel for the full two years. I think McCarthy has resigned himself to not being a strong leader and not being able to maintain the speakership for very long, but he wants to be able to say that he reached his lifelong dream, even if it turns out that that dream was covered in dog shit. Now, one thing that I will say before I close out of this story is there have been a lot of articles on both the right and left side of the media that have attacked those individuals that are preventing McCarthy from being speaker. But I don't think that's fair. McCarthy's no different than these motherfuckers. McCarthy is just the same. So McCarthy is an asshole. And these individuals that are blocking him, like Gates and Bo and uh, Bobert, are also assholes. But they're all assholes together. I believe that the fact that uh, that these 2021 individuals are saying that they will not vote for McCarthy is just as valid as the 200 that say they will. Why do we think that there is some some uh, some some type of virtue in the fact that the 200 want to vote for McCarthy and 20 don't? They're all the same. They're all fucking pieces of shit. 
There is no individual difference in any of the Republicans. They're all assholes, and I don't really give a, f a fuck if they just continue to fight themselves to the death. Uh, whoever dies, it's fine with me. I really don't care. All right, let's move on to the next story, which is, as I said in the intro, is fuck 12. So here's another data point from my side uh, of a recurring argument that I have had with both black and whites on uh, the other side, which is whether or not we need to defund the police. And in my opinion, we do need to defund the police. And everyone knows that when proponents like me of defunding the police say that we need to do that, we're not talking about disbanding the police. What we're talking about is limiting the number of armed responders and replacing them with non-armed responders that have been trained to deal with specific situations that will not require an armed response. Now, one of the reasons we need to defund the police is because there is a bias against black people and we cannot train that bias out of these motherfuckers. So we need to replace them with people that are not biased. And we can only do that by changing the changing the fundamental structure of the police force. So here's the story that just kind of uh, uh, is another data point pointing to this need to defund. The incident on Tuesday afternoon occurred when two officers assigned to safeguard a school dismissal saw a large fight break out among a group of girls. According to a statement from Julian Phillips, the police department commissioner for public information, the officers intervened, but as one of them tried to arrest one of the girls, a 14 year old girl who was part of the uh, melee uh, reached for the officer's hand cuffs and struck him in the head, Mr. Phillips said. What come next comes next appears to be captured on video. As the group moves along the sidewalk, the officer appears to lean in, push the girl backward as a second officer tries to grab her. Her head is down and her arms are raised to, to fend them off. The officer then appears, and it doesn't, it's not just appear, he does, to take his right hand and strike her on the head several times. As other children in the crowd, uh, other children uh, crowd around, raising their mobile phones to capture the incident. The two young people appear to try to, try to pull the girl back as the officer continues to beat her. The girls were black and the officer was white. And I feel that if the girls had been white, the officer would not have punched them under any circumstances, uh, any scenario that was similar to the one in which he punched this black girl. Also, I do not feel comfortable with an officer that would punch a child also having a gun. It would have been very easy for this incident to have escalated to end with the black teenage girl being shot by these motherfucking police. So fuck 12. Let's defund these bitch ass motherfuckers and move on. And so now here's the next story. And like I said in the intro, this is fuck 12 again or fuck 12.2. So a reporter for the Wall Street Journal was interviewing a passerby on a public street when a cop shows up and tells him that he's trespassing. The reporter, who was black and on a public sidewalk, as I said, was in no way trespassing, but he agreed to leave anyway and was told, quote, this could get very bad for you if you don't comply, end quote. That's what the officer told him. 
So here's the article on this particular case. Police in Phoenix are under fire for cuffing and detaining Wall Street Journal reporter Dion Rubian. Even after Rubian and a witness say he identified himself and agreed to comply with demands that he move from a sidewalk where he had been conducting interviews. Wall Street Journal editor-in-chief Matt Murray has sent a letter to the Phoenix police chief Michael Sullivan about the November 23, 2022 incident that was obtained by Phoenix ABC affiliate KNXV-TV. Murray described the incident in the letter, writing, quote, On November the 23rd, Mr. Rubian was interviewing passerbys on a public sidewalk outside the Chase branch at located at uh, 12038 or, or, or 12038 North 32nd Street in Phoenix. While Mr. Rubion was gathering news, he was approached by Officer Zimmerman, badge number 10442 of the Phoenix Police Department Desert Horizon Precinct. Officer Zimmerman, uh, Officer Zimmerman informed Mr. Rubian that he was trespassing. To be clear, at no point until then had Mr. Rubian been asked to leave the sidewalk outside the bank by Chase personnel or anyone else. Mr. Rubian, being an American citizen, had a clear right to be present on the sidewalk and engage in news gathering. Nonetheless, Mr. Rubian offered at that point to leave. Instead, Officer Zimmerman told Mr. Rubian, Rubian that he was being detained and placed Mr. Rubian in handcuffs before placing him in the rear of a police vehicle. Now, much of the incident was caught on video and shows the passerby who filmed Rubian's detention corroborating his version of the events, which contra- contradicts Officer, Officer Zimmerman's official report. Quote, I heard him say he was going to leave. This is ridiculous. He's a reporter, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen uh, Parody says in the clip. The officer threatens to arrest her too, but she continues to film until uh, Rubian is released. So here's a black man doing his job and he is accosted by a white cop. Although this black man was well within his rights to refuse to leave, he agreed to do so anyway and was still detained and threatened by the white cop. Please, please, please tell me why we want more of these motherfuckers on the street. As my girlfriend says, make that shit make sense to me. You can't. This shit is bullshit. All right, let's move on to the next story. And this is really in the same vein, even though it's an international story. And I'm asking the question now, is apartheid even fucking over? So I read this story in the New York Times, and it really sickened me. Uh, and this is related to a video that went viral and showed, it really shows you that, uh, it shows some young black men being assaulted uh, by white men at a South African resort. And I'm going to quote some excerpts from the article and then provide my comments. So here's the story. A violent attack by a group of white men on two black teenagers at a resort pool in South Africa on Christmas Day has sparked widespread outrage, reviving images of the ugly days of apartheid and serving as a stinging reminder of the country's unresolved racial tension. What's Now, what surprises me about this is that there seems to be some people who are surprised. I traveled to South Africa after the end of apartheid, and what I found was that there was little to nothing that had changed. What amazed me when I visited uh, is that the majority of the people that lived in townships, think ghetto, prior to the end of apartheid, they lived in townships, think ghetto, after apartheid. 
though the leadership of the government changed in South Africa, it did so with and it did so without bloodshed. It only did so under the agreement that the whites would retain all wealth, the best jobs and all the land. Yes, the end of apartheid meant that black success was no longer against the law, but structural and systemic racism still existed and black people were still oppressed. Now, let's get back to the article. Cell phone footage of the assault, which the teenagers say started when they were told the pool was, quote, for whites only, end quote, spread widely on social media. And it showed scenes that could have been from decades ago when in the apartheid era laws restricted South Africa's black majority from using public facilities designated for white people. A video clip shows one man delivering an open hand slap to the face of one black teenager, another grain white man uh, uh, casually holding a cigarette as he tugs the hair of the other black youth and one of the men wrapping the taller youth in a headlock and pulling him into the pool, seemingly trying to submerge the teenager's head underwater. In other words, trying to drown him, trying to kill him. So Brian Nakati, a former underground fighter against apartheid, said his 18-year-old son, uh, Kagongkong uh, Nakati, was one of the teenagers assaulted at the pool in Bloomy, uh, Bluefontein, a city about four hours south of Johannesburg. So let me make a long story short on this. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, a black family was staying at the resort and two black teen- or three black teenagers went to the pool to swim. They were confronted by grown-ass white men that said that the pool was whites only. So what the fuck? What, what motherfucking decade do they think we're living in? But the black youths, uh, which the article says were, quote, born after 1994 when apartheid in South Africa ended, said that members of their generation, known as the Born Freeze, were quote, not tolerant at all to such racist acts, end quote, and good for them. So these young black men did uh, not heed the warning from the white racists and climbed the fence to swim in the pool. The article says that all of the white people, except for a couple of kids, got out of the pool like it was contaminated. And then the white men came over, slapped one and tried to drown another and pulled the hair of one. So the article notes that, quote, since the fall of apartheid nearly 30 years ago, South Africans have proudly declared their country, quote, a rainbow nation, end quote. But the encounter uh, at the resort and conference center adds a litany of racist adds to a litany of racist episodes that have included soul searching and hand wringing among South Africans. As an example, after a bouncer was accused of refusing entry to a black patron without a white escort last month, protesters descended upon the bar in Cape Town. In May, the elite um, uh, Stellenbosch University was the site of an uproar after video surfaced of a white student urinating on the belongings of his black roommate, end quote. Also, as I reported on last year, There are Indians that are living in South Africa that assaulted and murdered black people driving through what they said was their neighborhood because they felt that they had full ownership of that land uh, and because it was given to them uh, by the racist government when apartheid was still uh, the, the law. So black people owned that land before these Indians were ever in South Africa. 
So this is just another example of the failed nature of the repeal of apartheid. It has not gone away. It is just hiding in the shadows and still wreaking havoc. All right, that's the end of that story. And let's move on to the next one. And this is about some just how crazy the fucking Republicans are. And I'm, and this one is just a, a, a leader in the, in the Republican, uh, not in the Republican party, but in the conservative movement, uh, says that, um, he is a time traveler. So here's the article. The meltdown in the House last week is a clear indication that the Republican party consists of clowns, lunatics, idiots, and insane fools. And this rant from Alex, Ali Alexander shows just how batshit crazy they are. Uh, well, that's not from the article. That's my own comments. I really hate these people. And the fact that Mr. Alexander can make these bombastic statements with no repercussions shows just how far down the rabbit hole America has gone. What's worse is some of his supporters, which are also Trump supporters, which are also Republican voters, take this shit seriously. What the hell happened to us as a people? So here's the article. As 2022 came to an end, the House Select Committee shut down its investigation into the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, that violently sought to prevent the certification of President Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. In addition to recommending that criminal charges be filed against former President Donald Trump, uh, for his role in fomenting the insurrection, the select committee released a score of transcripts from interviews it had conducted with various government officials and right-wing activists about what had transpired that day. Among the transcripts uh, released was an interview with far right-wing activist and idiot uh, Ali Alexander, who played a central role in organizing the so-called Stop the Steal movement that eventually gave rise to the insurrection. When the select committee shut down without Alexander facing any charges stemming from the insurrection, he unleashed a wildly egotistical rant during a Telegram live stream bragging that he had, quote, raped the January 6th select committee, end quote, end quote. You cannot, he, here's what this bitch had to say, quote, you cannot kill me and separate me from my movement, Ali bragged on the live stream, which was simulcast. Uh, by the, quote, cancel proof, end quote, channel on the white nationalist Nick Fuentes, Cozy.tv platform. Quote, I am the father of dragons. That's what Ali Alexander said. The father of dragons. I red pill celebrities. I create national nationwide movements. I make men, members of Congress shake, end quote, which is bullshit. That skinny ass motherfucker doesn't do shit. Now, I just want everyone in the world to dare me, he continued, just dare me, because for the first time in a 15-year career, I owe, I owe no one nothing, nothing. I have access to everything. They thought that they could contain my power level. I am playing dumb. I am playing crazy. No, you fucking are crazy, bitch. And a lot like Jesus, Ali, uh, Ali Alexander said. People will come to learn the truth. And guess what? Frankly, that's what I need to. That's what that's what I need to crucify me. That's why you're going to see both sides try to come together to crucify me. Here's the difference. Jesus was a carpenter and I've got a motherfucking machine gun. He is threatening people. This motherfucker should be arrested. But anyway, 
Alexander then claimed that he was able to best the select committee during his interview because he's a time traveler. Quote, these motherfuckers thought, and this is uh, Ali Alexander talking, these motherfuckers thought uh, I would talk to them, end quote. Uh, I was talking to the future because I'm a fucking time traveler. I wasn't talking to the fucking committee. They're dead. They're like whoosh. These people died a while ago. I came back in time to talk to dead people. So here I am talking to the future and they didn't even realize I knew how to talk into the transcript. I knew how to talk into the transcript. I knew when to talk over them. I knew when it would be, when it would frustrate the court reporter. I knew when not to talk over them. I knew when to wait. I knew when to say something that they thought that they could lick their lips on. And then I finished the sentence with, quote, I don't know, or that's the best of my recollection, end quote, or start a sentence. I don't know. But thinking about it, if I had to form an opinion today, it would be whatever. So this goofy ass motherfucking fool thinks he has done something. He thinks that he is off the hook. But the DOJ does not need a referral from uh, from the, the select committee to indict his stupid motherfucking ass. And they are more likely to invest this, investigate this idiot now that he's bragging about getting away with breaking the law. I guess that he will have to travel time travel now to the future or to the past to get out of the motherfucking trouble. He's probably got his stupid motherfucking ass into. So fuck that bitch. All right, let's go on to the next story, or actually, that's the last story. So um, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment. This shit is for us. All right, welcome back and welcome to the segment This Shit Is For Us, where each week I, a black man, provide some information intended for my black brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean if you're not black that you have to skip over it. Please feel free to listen to it, but just realize there may be some nuance to it um, that you might not get because it's a black thing. And if that happens, then send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. In fact, if you, uh, if anyone has any comments or any um, feedback for the show, uh, send an email to that address, feedback at rationalblackthought.com. All right, so let's get into this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. So I was browsing YouTube uh, the other day and came across a video with an interesting title. The title was, uh, or the title is, Was God in Africa Before Islam and Christianity? Now, the video featured a discussion between three Africans, one woman and two men. The woman um, uh, and one of the men, uh, which was, I think, the moderator, were dressed in traditional African dress, and then the other man uh, was in modern uh, clothing. And the reason that I point that out is because Uh, as we will see later on, uh, the one that was in modern clothing was the only one that was talking sense as it relates to what Africa needs and what Africa, uh, what can move African, uh, Africa forward. So uh, the video that I reviewed was actually an excerpt from a larger video. It started after the conversation that the video I watched 
it clearly started after the uh, conversation had already been underway for some time and it ended before I would have assumed that the, uh, the, the original video ended. Um, and the start is about, uh, is really where one of the men, the one in the, in modern clothing, which in, uh, in, in, as I go through this, I'm going to call him the wise brother, uh, ask a question. Um, and he's asking a question about the so-called quote word of God, end quote. Uh, and the woman who is a Christian is interrupting him uh, with some nonsensical reply. So the question that the, the wise brother asks is, quote, if the Bible is the word of God, how was God communicating with African cultures that used uh, primarily non-literal methods? Uh, he mentions a tribe that, uh, believe, that believed in the god Wari, uh, who um, it is believed communicated directly to his people. So uh, the wise brother goes on to describe the history of the creation of the Bible and how that over six to seven hundred years it was collated and held by the Catholic Church, which were the colonizers of Africa. Uh, so the Christian agrees that God communicated to Africans through the oral tradition, but claims, uh, as an example, that though the book of Genesis was, was written by Moses, it was, quote, dictated, end quote, by God. But let's look at this. What she is saying is that God had the perfect word of truth, but dictated that to an imperfect being who then dictated it to others. And that process reoccurred over now like 5,000 years. And yet all of the, through all of these iterations, through imperfect beings, the word somehow remained perfect. That's what the fuck she's saying. That's impossible. If there was a God and if he wanted to communicate the truth to individual men and women, the only way to do that would be to do it directly to do it through other people that obviously provided their biases means that we end up with a convoluted collection of writings that purport to be the word of God that we have today. So the Christian uh, says that, uh, quote, God is fun, end quote. Now, what does she mean by that? Well, what she means is some really fucking bullshit. She says that, that, that God is fun because of his fucking mysterious, mysterious ways logic. Uh, she says that God used the convoluted error-prone approach that I just outlined to allow everyone to fuck up the word of God. And then, uh, he, then God gives the truth to Moses to set the record straight. But the problem is that none of the writings from Greek mythology to Egyptian mythology to the Upanishads, etc., have any more logic or truth than the Bible, and none of them have less. So God did not set the record straight. The Christian then, uh, the Christian woman then claims that the veracity of the Bible can be determined by, as an example, that the only place, and this is her words, the only place that the creation of a woman exists in mythology is in the Bible. Now that's blatantly not true. The creation of a woman appears in Egyptian mythology. It appears in Dogon mythology, just as a few examples. In fact, in both the Egyptian and Dogon mythology, man and woman were created as a divine pair. They were not considered to be separate and therefore unequal. They were considered to be necessary. Both were considered to be necessary for a contiguous whole, and therefore they were equal 
And in the Bible, the woman was created as a lesser being to serve the man. So if anything, the creation of, of, of a woman as it relates to the mythology of the Bible is, is, is inferior to uh, the two that I just talked about in Egyptian mythology and Dogon mythology. So the, the Christian then tries to claim that, quote, the amazing, end quote, thing about Christianity is its monotheism. But she is ignorant of the fact that Christianity was not the first monotheistic religion and that the religion of Christianity is based on Judaism and Judaism is not fucking monotheistic. Genesis even talks about we as a pantheon of gods that created the universe. It is not talking about a single entity. Even the nonsensical concept of the Trinity undercuts the monotheistic nature of Christianity. They say that there is one God in three persons. Now, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Like God has split personalities or what? So the wise brother then interrupts to say, quote, you still haven't answered the question. And he says, the question is, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God as it was, as it has, was been, has been with the devil's children for so long, end quote. And to me, that's a good question. It is, it is a moot question because there is no God, but if there were, why would God then allow his word to be conscripted by people that did not have the Africans' best interest in mind when he redrafted, when, or when they redrafted, collated and curated it into something that worked for them and against us? Here's the truth. All religions are deification of culture. I'm going to repeat that. All religions are deification of culture. Judaism is the deification of Jewish culture. Islam is the deification of Arab culture. Hinduism is the deification of Indian culture and so on and so on. Christianity that was based on Judaism converted Judaism and deified European culture. Christianity is by definition incompatible with an African Mindset, because it is the deification of a culture of the culture of our oppressors, and by default, it oppresses us. I tell you, black people, you cannot accept Christianity as the truth without without allowing your mind to be inculcated by the ideology of white supremacy and colonialism. If you are a Christian, then you are an enemy of your own self-interest. You are a proponent of white supremacy, and you believe in the concept of the white man's destiny. You are putting roadblocks in the path of your own motherfucking success. So, in response to what the Christian woman said, the wise brother uh, then questions the uh, Christian uh, response with this, quote, yes, or or the the Christian woman's response with what the, to what the brother said with this quote yes they can mess it up but there is enough in there that they can't mess it up end quote now if that sounds like double speak you would be right it is also complete and utter bullshit this is what Daniel Dennett uh, calls deepities shit that sounds profound until you think about it and then you realize it is a big pile of proverbial dog shit. They can't mess it up. They can mess it up, but they can't mess it up. That's fucking bullshit. 
The conversation then goes to comparisons of God and the devil. The Christian says that God is infinitely more powerful than Satan and that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Now, I will refrain from debating the illogical nature of that comment, however, and go on to explain the, uh, the, the rest of the conversation. So the Christian said that people think that God and Satan are dueling on the same level, but they are not. The wise brother said that they are dueling on the same level and that Satan is actually winning. His evidence is that the Bible says that certain things should be happening if God is in charge and they're not happening. The Christian blames the fact that they're not happening on the rebelliousness of the people. But why are the people rebelling? If, as she said, there is enough in the Bible to convince anyone who God is, why would the people rebel? The wise brother is right. The evidence of reality contradicts the veracity of the so-called word of God. Now, the other brother um, is an African spiritualist, and then he chimes in to say that there are three Bibles that he believes in. The first he calls the natural Bible. This is synonymous with naturalism or the concept of nature itself as God. This is false, but not very harmful. Um, it is harmful because it's not true, but it does not produce a destructive, um, uh, it, it does not produce destruction as a byproduct of the belief. Bible number two, he says, are scriptures, which is like the Bible. In his mind, this includes the Bible and uh, other uh, writings like I had talked about before, like the uh, Upanishads and, and um, uh, the Vedas and other uh, writings like that. He says that these are words written by those who have had, quote, a theophonic encounter, end quote. Now, how do we know that these encounters were with God? We don't. They are exponentially contradictory uh, in every level. All of these scripts contradict one another, and they all say that they are based on theophonic encounters. Why is God so confusing if he is real? The third Bible, according to the spiritualists, is, that, is the heart or the consciousness. And he says that all three Bibles should align. But the wise brother says, but they don't align, end quote. The next uh, uh, the next um, uh, discussion comes about when the Christian counters the argument about the ex expectations uh, based upon the Bible not being manifested by saying, quote, all of the gifts of the Bible are free. For example, mercy, love, grace. But she says that the promises are conditional. So the wise brother retorts with Hung hungry people can't eat fucking mercy. Well, that's not a direct quote, quote because he weren't he wasn't cursing in in the video, but so I added some uh, of my own comments. But that's pretty much what he was expressing. What he was saying is that all of these so-called gifts that the Christian was talking about are free in the Bible, were not beneficial to people. That is, hungry people cannot eat mercy. They can't even fucking eat love or any of that other kind of shit. What they can eat is food. So if they're praying for food and all they get is mercy, fuck that is what the brother was saying. And then the next part and final part of the conversation that I want to discuss here is around spirituality. The wise brother says that our problem, that is the problem of Africa, that's what he was talking about, starts with spirituality. 
Now, I understand what he is saying, and I agree with it to a point, but I don't agree with the word. What he is talking about is philosophy, not spirituality. What, what he is talking about is what is our collective and personal philosophy? That is, what is our concept of metaphysics? That is the nature of reality. What is our concept of the nature of acquiring knowledge, which is epistemology? What is our concept of how we relate to other people, which is politics and ethics? That is what, that is the question. And the brother says that our philosophy, or in his words, spirituality, has been contaminated by our oppressors, and too many times we think like they do, which results in our efforts benefiting our oppressors and not ourselves. In fact, it, it works out to us oppressing ourselves with our philosophy. First, the wise brother says that Christianity has divided rather than united Africans. And that is absolutely true. We are divided. Even within the denominations within Christianity, we're divided. If you are a Christian, you are helping to divide and conquer Africans everywhere. The next concept discussed is the the diverse nature of so-called spiritual literature, the Bible, the Quran, etc. The wise brother says that there are problems with them. Uh, There are three problems with them. One, People don't understand what the fuck the book is trying to say, and especially of the Bible talking in parables and bullshit that can't be interpreted. The number two problem, he says, is that there is a high probability that the so-called words of God have been manipulated by people with malevolent intent. And the third problem is that they contain concepts that are anti-African. Now, the Wise Brother says that he is a spirit-filled Christian, but he says that his spirit is not in alignment with what he hears from the Christian doctrine. Therefore, he questions the way uh, or questions why the teachings of the church uh, uh, do not resonate with him as an African. The reason is not spiritually related. It is related to self-interest. It is that neither Christianity nor Islam espouses a philosophy that is beneficial to black people. Both are anti-black. Both are oppressive, and they are both based on white and Arab supremacy. The wise brother says that spirituality, I say philosophy, as I said before, is only true if, one, it brings us together as African people, and two, maintains and supports uh, nature, that is, supports the earth, and three, helps us to prosper as a people. Once we have established a beneficial philosophy, the next step, according to the brother, is that we will that that will drive our governance. That is the way we manage ourselves, our families, our countries and our race. The current African government, according to the video and what the the wise brother said, are not aligned with the right spirituality or philosophy in my mind, and therefore they do not govern in a way that is beneficial to black people. They instead align with our oppressors to exploit the people and the land. The reason why white people came to Africa, the, and all three in the group uh, agree with this, is because they were running away from the destruction that their philosophy created in the land they came from. The, the, the brother in the, in the, in the uh, video used the term death culture to describe white philosoph- philosophical thought and say that these people that had created death in Europe came to bring the same thing to Africa and to destroy Africa, and they did it in the name of God. So to end, 
uh, for this segment. Uh, there's much more to the video, but I w- I'm going to end it here. The Wise Brothers says that what Europeans brought to Africa was things like fracking and other destructive exploited technologies, which poisoned the groundwater, even though a primary African thought and proverb is to not shit in the well that you drink from. African leaders have made deals with those that do not value Africa to extract metals, minerals, and oil, things that do not have extrinsic value from the ability to sustain life, while at the same time destroying Africa's ability to sustain life, and they leave those African leaders with crumbs, crumbs from that process, while taking the majority of the wealth out of Africa and using it to fund further exploitation and destruction destruction of Africa and her people. All this, all this shit is energized and fueled by a flawed philosophy based on religious traditions that are inherently anti-African. Christianity and Islam are the two primary ideologies that are destroying us, and our participation in their rituals and processes are greatly contributing to our own self-destruction and oppression. If we want to be truly free, we have to rid ourselves of anti-African ideologies and philosophies and instead incorporate a pro-black version of humanism that will allow us to work together and allow us all to prosper. All right, that is it for this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to Bible study with Atheist Mike. All right, welcome back, and welcome to Bible Study with Atheist Mike. And our lesson for today is the book and movie 1984 as a religious metaphor. So most of us have either seen the movie or read the book, uh, which is, again, 1984 by George Orwell. The movie and Orwell's other movie, Animal House, became definitional for a certain, uh, I guess, mentality or genre. Orwellian, by definition, is related to a dystopian totalitarian society and is generally considered to be about political overreach. But I think it is really about a metaphor for religion and the destructive destructive nature of religious thought. I would assume that the majority of Christians that have watched uh, or the movie or read the book probably think that it is a story about the dangers of a government restricting religion, but that wouldn't be true. It uses Big Brother as a metaphor for God, an all-seeing being, an all-knowing entity that is looking down on what you do and passing judgment. And this God can even know what you are thinking, and you can be condemned for, quote, thought crimes, end quote, uh, as in the movie, and that is just like God knowing what is in your heart and condemning you for it, whether or not you act on it. So I'm going to use a scholarly paper to contextualize this discussion, and that paper is actually entitled 1984 as a Religious Critique, end quote. And it was authored by uh, Lindsay uh, Doughty of Trinity College, Hartford, Connecticut. So in the intro, intro of the paper, Doughty says, uh, quote, 
though he was raised in the angelical faith, by the end of his lifetime, Orwell identified closer with atheism and turned a critical eye towards organized Christianity. John Rodden, once a professor at the University of Virginia and University of Texas, has written a variety of material about uh, George Orwell. In his piece, Orwell on Religion, the Catholic and Jewish question, he recounts how Orwell told a fellow uh, Etonian classmate that he was a subscriber to the Catholic press so that he might, quote, see what the enemy is up to, end quote. So Orwell obviously was not writing 1984 as a defense of religion. He was expressing his displeasure with religion as a foundation for moral thought. If you're still not convinced, here is a quote from Orwell himself as quoted in the paper, uh, in, in the scholarly paper that I use for this discussion. Quote, Orwell thinks reflectively about his time in primary school, stating, Till the age of about 14, I believed in God, and I believed that the accounts given of him were true. But I was well aware that I did not love him. On the contrary, I hated him just as I hated Jesus, end quote. To me, this is quite clear as it relates to what Orwell believed as he wrote the book 1984. Now, I'm talking about Orwell's, uh, in talking about Orwell's book, um, Animal Form, the author says, quote, uh, of the paper again, the author of the paper says, quote, subtle hints at his opinion appear in this allegory, in his allegory, Animal Form, with his character Moses the raven that preaches the entry methods to Sugar Candy Mountain. Uh, in this case, Orwell is using Sugar Candy Mountain as a symbol of the concept of heaven. Orwell makes the symbolic assertion that the church is, is used as a means to give moral, more, moral, uh, moral, mor morale rather, to the working class. What better way to keep laborers from rioting than allowing them to believe their tribulations will end after they die and they shall be rewarded for their hard work. The tie with politics appears when Orwell addresses the attitudes of the pigs towards Moses. The pigs, quote, declare contemptu contemptuously that the stories about Sugar Count Candy Mountain were lies, and yet they allowed him to remain on the farm, not working with an allowance of gill of beer every day, end quote. So moving on to 1984, the author says, quote, Orwell turned part three of 1984 into a violent, if not extreme, rendition of a Catholic confession. In, in some, Winston is forced to admit to crimes he did not commit to a member of the party. O'Brien. In this situation, O'Brien acts as a priest and Winston takes the role of a member of the congregation. The purpose of Winston's confession is to acquaint him of the crimes he committed against the party so he may be executed as a law-abiding follower of the party. The situation is reminiscent of the Catholic practice of being absolved from sins before death so a person dies as a member of the faith and will be accepted into heaven. Patricia Hill describes this as, quote, a process similar to the traditional sacramental experience of penance, confession, mortification, penitence, and restoration of faith to community, end quote. In fact, Orwell's intense, intent was almost given away in O'Brien's discussion of the party's power during Winston's interrogation. 
While Winston is strapped into the chair, O'Brien says to him, we are the priest of power. God is power. These two small sentences confirm the religious undertones of the third section of the novel. O'Brien is bl- O'Brien's blatant references to religion, the amb- ambiguous existence of Big Brother, and the religion allegory throughout Orwell's depiction of Oceana is evidence to suggest Winston is living in a world controlled by an extremist Christian theology. In particular, this government resembles the Catholic Church, with a party directly corresponding to the church and the religion uh, being Ingsoc. So Orwell was a great writer, and this is my comments now outside of the paper, and his depiction of, a, of the government structure in 1984 is similar to what we see in The Handmaid's Tale. It is a fairly accurate depiction, depiction of what a state would look like if it were run by the religious. And uh, and to that uh, and 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 if that religion uh, allowed the government then to be uh, confirmed and conformed to biblical law, this is what we are moving towards in the U.S. today. The paper says, "quote The way that the citizens of Oceania reacted to the party is also indicative of a theocracy. For instance, the existence of Hate Week." And the two minutes hate are comparable to the Catholic Holy Week, the week prior to Easter Sunday and Mass. In both of these rituals, the objective is to solidify and unite behind a person's belief in the party leader. The primordial God figure within the novel Big Brother as, as a reference. In fact, during the first two minutes of the hate within the novel, Winston witnesses a woman whispering, quote, my savior, end quote, before Quote, she, is ex- she extended her arms toward the screen, then she buried her face in her hands. It was apparent that she was uttering a prayer, end quote. Now, the paper ends with this, quote, George Orwell's tale of 1984 is interpreted as a political cautionary tale. Principles such as double think seem increasingly pertinent with contemporary issues concerning, quote, fake news, among other Orwellian dystopian happenings like a constant state of war. However, while there is no denying the connection of Orwell's technology and, and philosophy to that of modernity, such as the telescreens and national surveillance, there is also strong evidence in support of 1984 as an allegory for a Christian theocracy. Orwell's longtime distaste for organized religion, in particular that of the Catholic Church, finally resulted in a published a, a work surrounding it. After all, by this point of his career, Orwell had published social criticisms of everything from dirty postcards to fascism. It would be foolish to think that Orwell Orwell went his entire literary career without writing a piece on religion. 1984 is a novel which George Orwell predicts the outcome of a totalitarian Christian theocratic government, end quote. So I close the segment this week by saying, uh, this just as past is prologue, so metaphor allegory is prologue. Books like Animal Farm in 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale tell us what the end of a march towards a theocratic state would look like. They are warnings to us that if we do not think and change our directions, we will end up being tortured because we do not believe in God and we will end up hanging on the wall. 
wake up, people. Let's learn from the past and learn from this metaphor and allegory and make the necessary changes to produce a world that we want to live in. We need to have a mindset that will produce what we want rather than allowing a virus ideology like Christianity to affect us and to kill both our mind and our body. All right, that is it for this week's segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike, and it's actually the end of the episode this week. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come out, we'll close out the episode for this week. All right, welcome back. And to uh, close out the uh, episode this week, I want to talk about, as I had said in the intro, retribution versus rehabilitation. So the American justice system used to see incarceration as a way to rehabilitate, um, not totally, but, but to place a higher priority on rehabilitation over exacting revenge. However, in the recent past, actually distant past for black people, the tide has shifted toward a retribution model with no thought of, of rehabilitation. So it is in this light that I think that the story that I'm about to relate in the closing is uh, good news. So here it is. In 2022, 11 inmates at the uh, Wisconsin prison in the Wisconsin prison system earned a certificate in welding through the Second Chance program at Milwaukee Area Technical College. That makes a total of 100 inmates since the program began. So Hynok Demesi, an African-American inmate, is one of the 11 men serving time at the Wisconsin Department of Corrections who became eligible to receive grants that funded their education. Each of the students in this year's graduating class completed 17 credits in one semester before graduating in December. Hopefully this is going to put me on the right track, Demesi told TMJ4. So Demesi is serving a 10-year sentence after being convicted of arson and burglary in 2019. Three years later, he got the opportunity to turn his life around once he is released. Since 2017, nearly 100 individuals have graduated from MATC, the MATC program, which aims to help them uh, get a job upon being released. Quote, if they don't have an opportunity to learn something and have a job when they get out, chances are that they are just going to repeat and end up back in prison, end quote, said Guy Berezin, uh, one of the instructors of the program. And that's extremely true. It is very, very difficult for an ex-felon to get a job. But being able to get a skill uh, like welding, I think, will put them on a better path. So congratulations to Mr. DeMessi and the other graduates. I hope the attainment of this marketable skill will put them on the path to achieving the American dream and on becoming a productive member of society. Once they have paid the price of their mistake, they should be allowed to achieve to their highest potential. And I think this program is giving them that opportunity. All right, that is it for the episode this week. So I'd like to remind you the intro music is Transcend by KIRK. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple, on Google, Stitcher, and Amazon, and many other platforms. But 
If it's not on the platform that you typically get your podcast, send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I will be sure to get it added. Once there, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if it's a feature of your platform, please leave me a five-star review. And I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.